a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you're uh, dipping your toe in the water, considering uh, taking the plunge into wrong think, well, I'm here to convince you you're doing the right thing. Not because you agree with me, not because you're, you know, ready to march in lockstep with the other wrong thinkers. I guess that's the beauty of wrong think. There is no obligation, implied or otherwise, to agree with anything that I present on this program. I'm going to do my best to share with you credible information as well as uh, hopefully rational, thought, well thought out, to, you know, opinion. Oh, Lord knows, I got a lot of those. But uh, most of all, I'm here to convince you that the best thing that any of us can do right now at this point in the history of the world is to think for ourselves, to to question, to think critically, to expose ourselves to those uh, opposing points of view. Whether or not we change our minds, well, that's on us. But I'd like to think that if, if you're actually looking for you know, points of view that fall outside of that three-by-five index card of allowable opinion, as Tom Woods puts it, that uh, you would be willing to incorporate new truth into your life when you encounter it. Now, having said that, I'm looking over uh, the list of uh, different uh, topics I'd like to cover today, and boy, there's there's a lot to start out. So I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the one that I think is most likely to cause a knee-jerk reaction, not because you're dumb and not because you're, you know, some kind of a dogmatic uh, reactionary, but just because politics gets people really wound up in some really weird ways. And I, I just want to talk for a moment about uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who has come out as a, as a potential candidate uh, for, for president, running on the Democratic ticket. Now, of course, Joe Biden, or whoever is operating the Joe Biden puppet, uh, it sounds like the plans are they're going to run him again in 2024. And why not? If you, if you could get a potato elected in 2020, I'm sure they could somehow make it happen again in 2024. It's all just a matter of, oh, well, we had to shut down the voting for a while. We'll be back in about uh, four or five hours, you know, when we have everything sorted out to have enough votes, you know, to, to start the, the tabulating again. Yes, if that sounds like I'm an election denier, it's because I, I think there are still way too many unanswered questions about the 2020 election. And no, I don't believe for a moment that if Donald Trump was president, everything would be peachy keen. I'm just saying the people who worked so hard to put Trump out of power um, don't seem to me like the kind of people who suddenly got honest and forthright, you know, just in time for the 2020 election. The desperation they showed from the time Trump was elected till the time he left office was was so full of dishonesty and, and just rabid partisan mindset that I, I have a really hard time believing that somehow they all straightened up and flew right, you know, just, just for this so that we could trust our democracy is working like it should. That's a bunch of baloney. I think any rational person could see right through that. Now, having said this, it's fascinating to see RFK Jr., throw his uh, hat in the ring and say, hey, I think I'd like to make a run. And frankly, I think he scares the Democrats as well as uh, Republicans in the establishment. I think he scares them worse than Trump does. He doesn't have nearly the baggage. He also has that Kennedy name, which, uh, you know, like it or not, Kennedy is uh, is a legacy 
name that uh, unfortunately has a lot of tragedy attached to it, at least in U.S. history. But uh, there is there is no doubt he could be a very serious contender to upset the apple cart. And and this is the kicker for me: the things that he has come out uh, as as making a focal point of this is this is what he would would like to see happen. This is the kind of stuff that uh, that threatens those who are currently holding those levers of power. In other words, he's he's not he's not playing their game any more than Trump was, and you can see that right off the bat. The New York Times, when they were reporting about his uh, his uh, speech that he gave a couple of days ago, announcing his presidential run. Here's how the New York Times reports. Well, it was a rambling two-hour speech, you know, the, where he was seeking to undermine Americans' faith in science. Just okay, you know they're pulling out the stops. They're already starting on the character assassination. So I'm not telling you. Therefore, we must all support RFK Jr. But I'm just saying, if the media is being sicked on him, and if the people in power view him as enough of a threat that they're preemptively starting the character assassination, kind of like they did with Trump back in you know about 2015. Hmm. Might be worth another look, or at least it might be worth considering what the guy has to say. Whether you vote for him or not, whether you have you know any faith in voting whatsoever, that's up to you. But I think you can tell a lot about a person by who their opposition is, and especially how vehement and unhinged their opposition becomes. And it's starting pretty early. I'm actually looking at an article here from uh, Jordan Schachtel, one of my favorite investigative reporters. He talks about the last Kennedy Democrat and says in a sane world, RFK Jr. would make a quality candidate for a political party. But he says today we live in clown world in which RFK Jr. might very well be the last Kennedy Democrat alive. Schachtel says Robert F. Kennedy Jr. gave a well-reviewed two-hour speech last night when he announced his entry into the presidential race. Now, <laughs> here are the seven main points from his speech. And, and tell me if, if some of these don't actually make a lot of sense. Number one, ending the co- corrupt merger of corporations and the state. I know we refer to this as capitalism, but it's crony capitalism. And actually, it's, it's becoming something even worse. It's, it's a type of oligarchy. Schachtel says this, the trouble, this troublesome system, rather, is what feudalists and oligarchs at the World Economic Forum and BlackRock refer to as public-private partnerships, or the paradoxically named stakeholder capitalism. But it's a, it's a problem, and it's asserting incredible control over your life. If you uh, were forced into the jab or job decision, that's one of the reasons why. Number two, he opposes lockdowns under any circumstances. Now, see, this is where I sit up and go, really? Well, tell me more. RFK Jr. emphasized that in no way can we let public health psychopaths run society again. I'm sorry, but that's a winning platform right there. And unfortunately, that is one place where Donald Trump is still extremely vulnerable. He advocated for lockdowns. He supported the lockdowns. It's on him. And I don't believe he's ever apologized for that. Number three, giving former President Donald Trump a fair shake on his record for each issue, but holding him accountable for his decision to give too much political power to government health bureaucrats. Jordan Schachtel says Trump is unfairly demonized by the corporate media, but there are issues like empowering the maniacal Fauci Burks clan that deserve further scrutiny. Number four, RFK says he will stand for supporting free market capitalism and limited government. 
Again, that's maybe that's just a dog whistle for us free market to libertarian types, but whoa, when's the last time you heard a candidate talk like that? Now, this especially pays homage to uh, JFK, a renowned president among American society, an ardent capitalist and supporter of classical liberalism. Number five, conquering children's illnesses. Now, RFK Jr.'s thesis is that too many vaccines are causing childhood illnesses, although he didn't mention this directly in his speech. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the New York Times, among others, refers to him as an anti-vax activist or anti-vax zealot. They probably have some other pejorative ways of, of describing it, but I have no problem with someone who is willing to be a dissenting voice on the vaccines. I think that's a choice other people have to make, you know, informed consent and all that. But I'm glad to hear somebody pushing back against that uh, so-called scientific consensus. We'll talk more about that later on in the show. Number six, another big one here, bringing the troops home. This plays well to the very real perception of an overstretched, damaged empire deeply wounded by the extensive war footing of the post-9-11 foreign policy regime. In other words, he's not a neocon. Number seven, openly discussing the merits of war. He's distancing himself from the war-happy uniparty in Washington, D.C. Similar themes to the presidency of his uncle, whose clear-headed analysis in the face of the military-industrial regime's ultra-aggressive demands may have saved the world from nuclear annihilation. Now, unfortunately for RFK Jr., he's running for the nomination of a party that's freakishly opposed to every single one of his staple items, says Jordan Schachtel. The Democratic Party is right now the party of Keynesian economics, transgenderism, big pharmacy, obsequiousness, slavish devotion to expanding government bureaucracy, and endless war. It's an absolute statist freak show on every level. And it's not that the GOP is much better, for, but for a guy in 2023 to run as a Democrat on a classical liberal free market platform, well, Jordan Schachtel says that really is something. So he says, I admire RFK, his charitable work, his seminal book, The Real Anthony Fauci. He also, he also seems like a total mensch, according to the people who've interacted with him. So he may very well be the last Kennedy Democrat alive. And I'm, again, I'm not telling you, boy, this is who you need to get behind. I'm, I'm not uh, trying to stump for anybody politically. I am just observing that uh, a candidate like that, that could have actually offer people a choice as opposed to Socialist Party A and Socialist Party B. Come on, choose one. Shot in the head or shot in the stomach. You have to choose one. What if I don't want to be shot? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the sponsors who make this program possible. I have a link in my show notes at the Brian Hyde Show that'll take you right to each one of them, where if you want to do business with them or just check them out further, you can do so. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. That's the Modern Conservative Podcast. That's my friend John Harvey, a speaker of truth if there ever was one. I don't know about you, but I I have great admiration for people who are lifelong learners. In other words, people who realize that there is something to be learned in nearly every situation. And I came across this article on intellectualtakeout.org from Alethea Hitz. And I really, I'm impressed 
with with her insights. Her, it's titled, What Three Years Working Retail Taught Me. Now, I'm thinking back, it, uh, it wasn't so long ago, it was just a few years ago, that uh, I, I found myself uh, working retail as a part-time job just to make ends meet. This was, you know, during the pandemic. It was, it was uh, just one of those necessary things that I didn't really feel like I would find myself doing, but there I was, and uh, trying to make the best of it. But I approached it from the standpoint of there's something to learn from this. And there were actually a lot of great lessons that came from it. So I, I want to share with you some of the observations that Alethea Hitz uh, has over what she learned with three years of working in retail. She says, on a whiteboard in a communal space at my university, a student wrote this question. If you could make one law, what would it be? And the answers written by students from a, from a variety of different majors were sometimes funny. Everyone gets free ice cream on Fridays, one person wrote. Others were more serious, a little more ideologically weighted. Therapy is mandatory for all who need it. She says, the one that really caught me was straightforward and simple. And it was this. Everybody must work at least one month in retail. Now, she says, well, I can't say I'd vouch for the practicality of a law like that. Part of me applauded. She says, I've spent three years working retail on and off. And it certainly taught me significant things about people, systems, and the value of hard work. So here are three helpful things that I've learned so far. She says, number one, people need the benefit of the doubt. Though hundreds, probably through hundreds, probably thousands of hours cashiering over summers, weekends, and school holidays. She says, I've met many different people from the girls with the spiderweb earrings and lacy black skirts to the joking older men. Most customers only interact with me for a few minutes, sometimes less. Because of that, I frequently get impressions of people that may or may not be true. For example, a young mother may seem inattentive and socially careless as she texts a friend instead of answering my questions. And a frustrated elderly man may appear grumpy when I explain that his item isn't on sale. When this happens, she says, I remember that there's much more to a person's character than what I see. So while first impressions can be correct, they aren't always always accurate, rather. My mother, rather, she says, the mother, for instance, may normally be an excellent, engaging communicator who's distracted by her never-ending to-do list back home, and the old man may be remembering his late wife's love for the dreamcatchers two aisles back. When it comes to short interactions, we scarcely know anything about who the person truly is, and we should be willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, that's good advice. Secondly, she says, systems are more complex than they seem. After a few months working at my nearby retail store, She says, I began to appreciate the intricacies of how businesses work. Every in-store product has traveled from a factory to the local shelf. It has seen dozens of hands crafting, embellishing, wrapping, boxing, storing, unboxing, and sorting it. And the process isn't simple. In addition to that, a clean store doesn't come by accident. In the retail place that she works at, she says, the employees spend hours every day returning unpurchased merchandise to their departments and pulling items neatly to the front of the shelf. Because of this, she says, I believe we should all have some measure of sympathy for hardworking retail and service industry employees. Often the problems that may appear easy to solve, such as restocking an item on the shelf or fixing up a messy display, exist as part of a larger web of duties and responsibilities. Beyond just the retail components, hardworking people play an important role through every stage of an item's creation, from manufacturing to selling. From the outside, it's easy to suggest how to improve these systems, stocking, cashiering, even the manufacturing process or supply chain. 
but at only a first glance, we won't fully understand why a system is the way that it is. Our suggested changes could actually make things worse. Now, this same principle, by the way, can be applied to everything from traffic rules to the U.S. economy to long-standing religious or cultural traditions. There's a lot that goes into allowing us to live our everyday lives that we may not notice. And number three, she says, good work doesn't require flashy duties. Now, Alethea Hitt says, look, I'll confess, working retail, that's not my natural strength. I tend to do better writing an essay than finding the hook for an obscure piece of merchandise. And while I genuinely enjoy interacting with people, the hordes of 30-second checkout conversations are often draining. Still, she says, I've found value in the fact that even in work, I may not be good. Or even in work, I may not be good at, rather. I can still work well. I can train myself to do my duty in small tasks, building my character for the bigger responsibilities that will eventually come my way. For most of us, virtue doesn't consist of completing massive tasks or spectacular projects. Instead, it focuses on faithfully fulfilling the small duties of life. Retail has shown me to do these small things with care, to do them remembering that we can work well despite the seemingly insignificant nature of the responsibility. So there you have it. Three things that that she learned from three years of working in retail. Now, if you haven't worked retail... You know, it's I, I do agree with her that it's 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 an a, an eye-opening experience. You will meet all kinds of people. It's kind of good if if you tend to be a little bit of a hermit, which I do. <laughs> I prefer to be sequestered here in my studio and behind my keyboard and yes, you know, the world out there looks pretty weird from where I'm sitting. So, yeah, I don't I don't feel like sometimes I get out and interact enough. And and uh, standing behind the counter uh, as, as part of my duties, uh Definitely broke me out of that shell. And, and I'll tell you something that, that really I thought was, was positive from this. It also helped reinforce that there are good people from every walk of life. I mean, you see people come in that uh, were homeless or maybe even just a step above homeless. You'd see people come in who are extremely well off. There were good people from every possible demographic. And there were some not-so-good people, too. But if you if you really try to figure out, well, what was the ratio of good to not good, the good far outweighed the not good. And even among the not good, you have to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt because there were some people who just simply had a very bad day. I like her observation about the systems being more complex than, than they seem. Once in a great while, you know, you'll get somebody who'd say, hey, I really appreciate uh, you guys have the cleanest restrooms. And, and, you know, maybe maybe kind of like my kids. Or how do they get that way? I don't know. They just, you know, just like the laundry suddenly appears folded, you know, in my room. Yeah, well, somebody actually, you know, has to undertake the pains of making that happen. The trash doesn't magically take itself out. The dishes don't magically wash themselves. It makes you appreciate all the little things that go into making it a pleasant experience. And that last observation of hers about uh, good work not requiring flashing, flashy duties, this is a lesson it took me a while to learn, but, but it, it rings very true. And that is, if you will make yourself do those small things in a great and noble way, your character grows as a result. You become more dependable. And, and the lesson here for young people, I tell this to my kids, and I think most of my kids have figured this out. If you're given a job, You know, even if it's kind of a crappy job, but you do it well, 
you're not going to be in that crappy job for long, or at least you're not going to be stuck forever doing those, uh, those grunt work kind of duties. Bosses and managers and people who, who depend on you to do your job well, notice the workers who actually put effort into what they're doing. And, and by the way, they also notice the workers who have that attitude of, they don't pay me enough to do this kind of work. Those are the people who usually find the door on their own or sometimes, you know, after you know, some kind of, you know, dereliction of duty. Anyway, it's a great article. You'll find it in today's show notes. Kudos to Alethea Hitz for sharing what three years of working in retail has taught her about life. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Okay, I I know I'm spending too much time on Twitter. Whenever I start to feel my blood pressure rise, it's like, all right, got to take a break. (laughs) There are are some things that uh, some people just live to provoke and others just, they provoke without realizing that they're doing it. And, and there's some really amazingly uninformed takes, particularly when it comes to gun control. And there seems to be this building fever pitch. We've got to control assault weapons. we got to do it now. There's no time to think. Quick, act. We must do something. What happened the last time we did that? Oh, that's right. We locked down society and injected people with experimental uh, mRNA vaccines and, well, destroyed the economy and a lot of people's mental health. But other than that, you know, it worked out pretty good, I'd say. I mean, it's the equivalent of a, but other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, what, how did, what did you think of the show? Okay. I want to share with you a little article here from D. Parker. D. Parker is a regular contributor to AmericanThinker.com. And this is about the media's role in mass shootings. And this, to me, is, is one of the better commentaries that I have seen calling the media to task for exploiting the pain of people and 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 also furthering the idea that uh, that this mental contagion or media contagion, uh, you know, is it's okay, you know, to to write your manifesto and go out there and do some heinous act if you're coming at it, you know, from a left wing point of view. By the way, I'm still wondering why they haven't released the uh, manifesto of the uh, transgender shooter at the Christian school in Tennessee. That one, you know, I'm still still trying to decide why why won't they release it. It must be a really interesting peek inside the left-wing, hard left-wing mind, the little Marxist mind. Here's what D. Parker says. On April 10th, 2023, we witnessed another mass murder tragedy, exactly two weeks from the last one on March 27th. We're making note of this fact because a real phenomenon, studied in numerous research papers and articles over the years, predicted this timing with an average of 12.5 days given the added factor of the holiday weekend. The past few years have seen long stretches of calm, despite the propaganda from the biased and suspect Gun Violence Archive, which seeks to label almost every petty crime incident as a mass shooting in the mind of the public. On occasion, the peace is interrupted, with mass shootings taking place at predictable intervals after each miscreant from the previous shooting is elevated in the media to anti-hero status. He says, this is the well-known and well-studied phenomenon of media contagion, with each subsequent attack being predictable as clockwork. 
So why aren't the nation's socialist media taking responsibility for its actions in causing these tragedies? Why does it appear they would rather exploit people's pain for their political gain than save lives? Now, D. Parker says, look, we predicted this 12 days ago at the time this was written. Studies such as mass shootings, the role of the media in promoting generalized imitation, have findings that these occur every 12.5 days with these effects. It's hard to fathom that the media doesn't understand this with articles that show they know. And there's a list of about six different articles linked that back this up. It's not a one-off. There clearly is a connection. So will the media blame themselves for causing the next tragedy or fall back on their default of going after our common sense civil rights? D. Parker says, in recent years, people have started to catch on. One example is this report titled, The Media is an Accomplice in Mass Shootings. The first misery came as I heard the names and numbers of victims and thought about the pain they and their families will endure for the rest of their lives. The second dose came as I held my breath, hoping and praying that the media wouldn't amplify the violence, but they did. While a few showed restraint, most media outlets did exactly what they needed to do to influence the next perpetrator to lock and load. They named the shooter, they described his characteristics, they detailed the crime, they numbered the victims, they ranked him against other successful attackers. Shootings are a contagion. After a full year where one pandemic has had its way with us, we have a choice now as to whether we invite another one. And the media are thus far acting as perfect accomplices to do so. The science is settled. Ha! <laughs> there really is no useful debate on the point. The consensus of social scientists since David Phillips' groundbreaking work in 1974 is that highly publicized stories of deviant and dangerous behavior influences copycat incidents. Now, over the years, there have been a lot of different studies on the phenomenon. I'm just going to share a few of the headlines that he links to of some of these studies. Revisiting the contagion hypothesis, terrorism, news coverage, and copycat attacks. Here's another, the mass murder history, modern classifications, sociodemographic, and psychopathological characteristics, suicidal dimensions, and media contagion of mass murders. Contagion in mass killings and school shootings. Media contagion is factor in mass shootings, study says. Fame-seeking rampage shooters, initial findings and empirical predictions. Here's another, mass shootings, the role of media in promoting generalized imitation. Does media coverage inspire copycat mass shootings? The influence of media related to mass shootings, in fact, I'm not going to go through the whole list. There is, there's probably close to 20 different articles here. But they all kind of surround that same question. Are the media making mass shootings worse? Now, D. Parker says, if we were cynical, we would suspect that the propaganda of the gun violence archive was meant to fill in the peaceful gaps between shootings to give the impression of an epidemic, an ongoing crisis. But that can't be the case, can it? That would be like the National Socialist Media ignoring the very real phenomenon of media contagion. Note that we're not calling for censorship against these miscreants. The information should be available somewhere, but it doesn't have to be broadcast everywhere. That's a good point. So you should be asking yourself, why don't the media care about the effects of their coverage? The evidence points to their coverage causing this phenomenon, yet they don't seem to care. Why is that the case? Could it be that their ghoulish, gun-grabbing goals are more important to them than saving lives? 
I think it's it's a question worth asking. And you'll notice, too, that uh, the, the media gets very selective in the way that they report these kinds of things. You know, when it turns out that the shooter has leftward leanings or is transgender or otherwise uh, some, some mentally unbalanced Marxist, suddenly it's, it's tamped down and, well, we really weren't that interested in, in what was going on. But, oh, heaven help us. If the person has a light-skinned complexion or some kind of right-wing sympathy. Look, my point is simply this. Anybody can twist off. I remember not too many years ago, there was a shooting that took place in a police chief's office. Why? Well, the police chief and the officer had an argument and it escalated to gunplay in the police station. The point being, anybody can lose their marbles. But I think Dee Parker actually has a very solid point to consider here. And that is, when the media amplifies and ranks, well, this shooter only racked up 26 bodies, but this one, you know, came close, and suddenly it becomes almost a competition. Who can, who can become more infamous than the one before? And you're starting to see some of this sickness creep out there. And when I use the word creep, I'm using that word very advisedly. Um, as, as far as... Uh, the, the creepy um, transgender activists out there advocating violence. Well, we're being genocided, therefore it is open season. We have no choice but to arm ourselves and to step up and take direct action. And that means you shoot anybody who even expresses the slightest disapproval of, you know, transgender politics. I'm sorry, Dr. Brian's diagnosis is those are mentally ill people being exploited and goaded into taking, you know, bloodthirsty action against imagined harms that society is doing them by not affirming them every second of every day. And it's pretty dangerous. It, it, it will get people killed. I mean, we see a similar thing, you know, where, where I live in southern Idaho, we have a, a very notable landmark, and that would be the Perrine Bridge. That's the gateway into Twin Falls, Idaho, spanning the Snake River Canyon, roughly a quarter mile across and about 500 feet high. It's a favorite with base jumpers. In fact, it's one of the very few places where base jumping is absolutely legal. The bridge has also been kind of a favorite spot for, for people who wish to end it all. And I've lost count of how many people I've been aware of that have jumped from the bridge over the years. It's a lot. It's tragic. And I've noticed that uh, local media here tends to, to not magnify or amplify, well, we had more jumpers today, especially when they're young people. But, you know, news travels small or travels quickly in small towns and, and uh, the, the word does get out. And the whole idea of, well, is there a copycat effect? I, I think there's truth to it. Same thing when, a, you know, a kid, you know, shoots himself. It's something that other kids who are right there on the edge will sometimes copycat. And I'm not, I'm not saying the solution is, therefore, we don't ever talk about, you know, the difficult things. I think it's how we talk about them that really makes the difference. And blasting it from media and trying to get it as far and wide. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. Maybe we should revisit that mentality and try a little more productive approach. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Final segment of the show today. Three quick articles I would like to touch on here. Uh, first one, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't play the mental gymnastics. I'm just not flexible enough to engage in the mental gymnastics to, to be up to speed on the latest pronouns and, you know, how to make sure that I'm not uh, misgendering someone or otherwise referring to them. Uh, there, there are TikTok videos that abound, and, and people sometimes will share these on, on uh, Twitter. And, uh, you know, I feel pity for for the person who's trying to explain, well, uh, I am otherkin and you all refer to me as this and that. It's not that hard, people. But it's, it's just, it's so much made up gobbledygook. And I believe, and I could be wrong, I believe the whole purpose behind it is to keep people as off balance as possible, uncertain of what we can or can't say or do without offending people. And that, in essence, is giving power or it's, it's the taking of power by whoever is out there pushing that nonsense. And if, if that's what they want to do, that's great. You know what? They, they can do that all they want. But when they insist, in fact, when they demand that other people participate in their fantasy, sorry. That's a game I don't want to play. So I'm including this article, The War on Pronouns is Really a War on Language. This is from David Lanza. This was published on AmericanThinker.com. The use of, pro, of plural pronouns, they, them, to refer to a single person has insidiously kept, crept rather into our language. David says this practice is especially common in mass media publications and other establishment writings. It's more than a mere passing fad. It's time for us to understand what this trend really means for all of us. Now, one example he cites was linked by MSN.com, included the headline, Non-binary ex-Biden staffer Sam Brinton's family calls them a liar, claims their abuse story never happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the media is absolutely bought into this 100%. The headline is incomprehensible by traditional rules of grammar. The reader would not know who is meant by them and their, and even if we're familiar with Sam Brinton and his story, we would not know what people his family calls a liar. The plural words tell us that there are multiple third parties that Brinton's family accuses. So we're misled, we're distracted by those plural pronouns, and an innocent reader would not have concluded that Brinton himself is the real target unless you undertook the process of clicking on the link and reading the article. The reader would then have to remember the new mandate requiring us to misread plural pronouns as applicable to singular to single people, rather, as the individual subject's whim dictates. Singular is now plural. Plural is now singular. Words have no meaning. It's a remarkable article, and the conclusion is just simply this. It's our duty to defend our language by refusing to surrender the difference between plural and singular. We must remember and insist that one person cannot be multiple people. I would call this, we, we have to stay at least connected to reality. We must stubbornly stick to plain language, referring to no one person only in the singular, or referring to one person only in the singular, will protect the benefits that language bestows upon all of us. If our language is rendered meaningless, gender issues will be the least of our problems. Again, this is uh, David Lanza from American Thinker. Excellent, excellent article. Also, uh, speaking of uh, you know language and, and censorship, now that uh, we have journalists who have pulled back the curtain on the uh, censorship industrial complex, I'm talking about the Twitter papers. 
It looks like Democrats on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, have pushed back, and now they're threatening journalists. Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger testified to Congress about the existence of the censorship industrial complex. The Twitter files show very clearly there was collusion between government agencies and these large platform uh, social media giants in squelching certain points of view, in promoting other points of view. So now the Federal Trade Commission has sent a letter to Elon Musk, who's the owner of Twitter, demanding he identify all journalists involved in reporting on the Twitter files. That was actually the the day before Tabby and Schellenberger testified to Congress. By the way, at the very moment that they were accusing them of being, that members of Congress were accusing them of being fake journalists, in other words, while they were there testifying, an IRS agent visited Matt's home. A subtle, uh, not too subtle, warning. But now, you actually have a member of Congress who is, uh, this is Representative Stacy Plaskett, sending Matt Taibbi a letter that uh, claims he lied and saying he could face five years of imprisonment for lying to Congress. What actually happened was they, they sicked a, uh, an MSNBC host, Mehdi Hassan, um, on Taibbi, on air, and uh, they falsely claimed they had debunked the Twitter files. Hassan and others in the mainstream news said, oh, well, they, they, they had a tough time here. But uh, what, what happened was Taibbi, I think he, made a, he, he misquoted something in a tweet, which he corrected, as a good journalist would do. But because he had misquoted something in a tweet, he was accused of lying while giving testimony before Congress. Crazy stuff. So the bottom line is this. The Twitter files blew the lid off the censorship industrial complex. Now, the leaders of that complex are retaliating not just to scare us off, but to scare other journalists. And Michael Schellenberger says, but they don't understand. They don't scare us. They energize us. He says, when Matt and I testified to Congress about the existence of the censorship industrial complex, we were just getting started. We won't rest until we dismantle it and bury its parts underground. What, was that a threat? (laughs) I certainly hope it is. And it's one I hope that they make good on. All right, finally, it's a lot easier to achieve scientific consensus when you actively suppress and censor dissenting voices. Wonderful article that I picked up from the Brownstone Institute's website, brownstone.org. This is from Marianne DeMasi. She is from Australia, and she's referring to the interview that Neil deGrasse Tyson gave uh, with uh, Del Bigtree when he was challenged about his views on COVID-19, and he said, I'm only interested in consensus. Words that would have Nicholas Copernicus and Galileo Galilei rolling in their graves. She says, the appeal to scientific consensus is fraught with problems, just like the science is settled and trust the science and other authoritarian tropes that have, document, or that have dominated rather the pandemic. A widely accepted theory, such as the theory of evolution, depends on a consensus being reached within the scientific community. But it has to be achieved without censorship or reprisal. As Aaron Cariotti, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, recently said, science is an ongoing search for truth. And such truth has little to do with consensus. Every major scientific advance involves, involves challenges to a consensus. Think about that. Those who defend scientific consensus rather than specific ex- experimental findings are not defending science, but partisanship. End quote. So this leads us to consensus by censorship. 
And it's not difficult to reach a scientific consensus when you're squelching dissenting voices. The origin of COVID, a classic example. Think about the Great Barrington ex- uh, Declaration as another example. Three eminent professors from Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford universities argued against lockdowns, which they said would disproportionately harm the underprivileged. But former National Institute of Health director Francis Collins dismissed them as fringe epidemiologists, asking Anthony Fauci for a quick and devastating takedown of the declaration. By the way, we have the receipts. We have the emails. So in other words, scientific consensus has become a manufactured construct dictated by politics and power. And the recent release of the Twitter files reveals how government agencies, big tech, media, and academia colluded in an effort to police online content and censor dissenting voices to create a false perception of consensus. One egregious example was Stanford University's Virality Project that brought together elite academia, experts in artificial intelligence, and social media companies to censor true stories of vaccine injuries under the guise of fighting disinformation. Now, Robert Malone, physician and pioneer of mRNA technology, summed up the situation accurately when he said, The real problem here is the damn press and the internet giants. The press and these tech players act to manufacture and reinforce consensus around selected and approved narratives. And then this is being weaponized to attack dissenters, including highly qualified physicians. Now, there's also consensus in mainstream media. And this is, this is where, uh, in, in this case, uh, Marianne Demasi is coming from. She worked for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. She, she thought, uh, you know, that she was doing the right thing by, by teaching or speaking the truth, rather. No, media is not about that. It's not about keeping us informed. It's about keeping us within that uh, rhetorical corral that uh, people in power want us to remain in. There's a link to this article in today's show notes. I hope that you'll check it out for yourself. It's really fantastic. By the way, great quote from Michael Crichton. Consensus is the business of politics. The greatest scientists in history are great precisely because they broke with the consensus. There's no such thing as consensus science. If it's consensus, it isn't science. If it's science, it isn't consensus. Period. Words that we might want to keep in mind for future reference. This is The Brian Hyde Show.